why is it that one senator should have this much power? I mean, you know, we're in a democracy where one senator is holding things up, and it's absurd, really. Yes, it is. Which makes it perfect for the broadcast. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It definitely is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California on Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing. Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. As the week of intensity continues... And intensifies. It does. Hello, Desi Doyen. Hello. Uh, Before we get to the uh, week of intensity... The months of lies and fraud and nonsense coming from the right continues. Last week, we broke the story nationally on this program that the ridiculous, phony, secret, so-called forensic audit of the 2020 election in Maricopa County, Arizona, by the right-wing partisan conspiracy theorist company calling themselves Cyber Ninjas, ended disastrously for them when they had to admit that not only did they fail to find evidence of any fraud in Maricopa County, that's Phoenix, but their own hand count of 2.1 million handmarked paper ballots found that, as originally certified by the county and state last year, yes, Joe Biden did, in fact, defeat Donald Trump last November and in the uh, in the state and, in fact, He beat him by about 361 more votes than the county had originally certified. Now, I'm I'm sure you're not surprised, however, to hear that Donald Trump immediately went out and lied about what the audit actually found. Yeah, I know you're shocked. He <laughs> he lied about it. Um, so those we reported the results on Thursday. It was uh, made official and uh, disclosed publicly on Friday. And then on Saturday, Donald Trump went to Georgia for another pathetic MAGA rally in uh, in the state. And well, Stephen Colbert described it all this way. Biden has won Arizona. And the Republicans all know it. They called for the audit. They paid for the audit. They conducted the audit. 
which confirmed the former president lost on the forensic audit, or as he put it, we won on the Arizona forensic audit yesterday <laughs> at a level that you wouldn't believe. Yes, we wouldn't believe. <laughs> So nothing's going to shut this guy up. No matter what the results are, he's just going to go out and say he won. He's not playing three-dimensional chess. He's not even playing regular chess. He's just shoving the bishop up his butt and yelling, Yahtzee! <laughs> yeah. That's, that's paid to pay to Yeah, that's, that's about it. That's what is going on here. Uh, sadly, there's a lot, a whole lot of people out there who fall for it. Why? Because, well, there's a whole bunch of people who are making a whole bunch of money joining him in that lie. And it's not only is uh, is Donald Trump out there pretending that the audit in Arizona actually found fraud, which it decidedly did not. But now there is this. As uh, TPM's Matt Shuham reported on Wednesday, there's apparently a phony copy of the final report from the sham Arizona audit floating around that advises lawmakers not to certify the 2020 election. Uh, as Shuham no notes, unfortunately, the state's governor already did so about 10 months ago. The inexperienced, politically biased auditors, so-called, of Maricopa County's 2020 election results announced in their final report that, yes, Joe Biden won the election. Then they spent the majority of their report flagging easily explained so-called anomalies to provide grist for Donald Trump and others to question and undermine the confidence in the democratic process. And grift on. But report Schuen, that apparently was not enough material for some of the big liars who have begun circulating a fake report that claims the entire election should be trashed. The fake report, and it looks exactly like a draft of the real one. It's a very good fake. It asserts that based on its findings, quote, the election should not be certified and the report and the reported results are not reliable. It looks like that is what the cyber ninjas were claiming when they decidedly did not. This guy, uh, Matthew DiPerno, who is a candidate for Michigan Attorney General, who for months has pushed conspiracy theories about the election and the vote totals out of Antrim County, Michigan, where there was a mistake on election night that was quickly cleared up to everyone's satisfaction. Except for, you know, the MAGA mob and folks like Donald Trump and Matthew DiPerno, who's running for attorney general. He tweeted this fake report out last week with along with the uh, with the claim, uh, quote, source confirms this is the real Arizona audit report being censured in Arizona. I think he means censored, but yeah, censured in Arizona. The the election should not be certified, DePerno. Again, a candidate, DePerno said, General. a candidate for attorney general. He tweeted this out along with the pages from this phony version of the audit report claiming uh, to be a draft that says the election should be decertified. Now, Donald Trump endorsed DePerno's candidacy for Michigan State Attorney General earlier this month. So, hey, Michigan, if you want a really talented attorney general who's going to look at the evidence and uh, come and, up with... Uh, and be <laughs> able to assess yes. the evidence accurately. 
Now, Doug Logan, who is the Cyber Ninja CEO, he's the lead auditor in Arizona. He was listed as an expert on one of DePerno's lawsuits over that Antrim County result. That lawsuit was dismissed in May because there was nothing there. But on Tuesday... A spokesman for Logan's Cyber Ninjas, a guy by the name of Rod Thompson, said in an emailed statement to TPM that, quote, there is a false version of the executive summary of the Maricopa County Forensic Election Audit report that is circulating. This false version claims to be an earlier version of the Cyber Ninjas executive summary, but because of supposed threats from the state Senate, it was not used, Thompson said. This is absolutely false, he added. Specifically, he notes, this false version of the summary states the election should not be certified. Thompson then linked to a document that was posted online, which the data at the website showed was uploaded by Jim Hoft. The, really? Yes, the founder of the uh, popular conspiracy theory and shame of Missouri, a website by the name of Gateway Pundit. Thompson said the document was, quote, not written by Cyber Ninja CEO Doug Logan, nor was it in any version that was ever sent or shown to the Senate for review. Nonetheless, the right wing MAGA fake news site calling itself Gateway Pundit and frequently cited by the MAGA mob for its misleading evidence of fraud in the 2020 election had multiple live articles up referring to this fake report as if it was real. For some reason, this did not make any headlines, one of the articles ex exclaimed to the millions of Trump dupes and suckers and patsies that uh, frequent the site. Another uh, Gateway Pundit article took the Republican establishment to task for not circulating this phony report. The GOP webpage did not have a single mention of these explosive findings. Jim Hoff's story raged, adding, at some point you start to see these people are working for the other side. Yes, yes, they are. They totally are, Jim Hoft and Gateway Pundit. You have busted them. You guys should <laughs> definitely raise hell with this. Do not, you're right, do not vote for anybody who has an R by their name next year because they're all working for the other side. Just stay home. Don't vote at all. They're not working for you, Jim. Republicans are definitely working for the Democrats, and thankfully, you have exposed it all for everyone to see. Well done. Don't fall for those phony rhinos. Republicans in name only. Don't fall for those rhinos any longer. Senate uh, Audit Liaison, the Arizona Senate Audit Liaison, and former Arizona GOP Chair Randy Pullen, who was a huge supporter of this ridiculous audit in Maricopa, he told the Capital Times, he admitted to the Capital Times, this is a fake document. There was never a discussion about decertifying. Well, don't listen to him, Gateway Pundit, because uh, he and the entire Republican Arizona Senate, they are obviously lying. They are obviously working with Democrats. They're working for the other side. Vote them out as well. Absolutely. Jim Hoft has nailed it again. Anyway, beware of that phony report out there. But from fake rhinos... In Arizona to seemingly real dinos, uh, Democrats in name only in Arizona. Yeah, I'm talking to you, Kirsten Cinema. 
Congress is, as Daily Coast's Laura Clausen aptly describes, a flaming mess <laughs> this week. And she says it's not even only because of Republicans. Senate Republicans are the ones pushing the United States toward a first for, toward first a government shutdown coming this Friday, October one, if nothing changes, and a a debt default, a default on the U.S.'s good faith and credit for the first time in history. That will be coming October 18 for the first time in history if it happens. And it would result in a financial, global financial calamity with, uh, as uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen described this week, catastrophic economic consequences. That attempted GOP chaos is largely meant to throw a wrench in what the Democrats, almost every single one of them, is actually trying to accomplish for the American people in adopting Joe Biden's immensely popular Build Back Better agenda. You know, the one that he was elected on, that is extremely popular right now among the American people, and that all but really a handful of Democrats at this point, really just one or maybe two, are blocking right now. Those Democrats, largely Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, but really mostly Kirsten Sinema, it seems, uh, are seemingly, as Clausen argues, basking in the attention of the squeaky wheel and taking one endless White House meeting after another while refusing to say what exactly they want or that they would accept in a Build Back Better bill to be passed using reconciliation, which only requires a simple majority in the Senate, which the Democrats have if all the Democrats are on board. Almost all of them are. I don't know what they want, said Senate uh, Majority Whip Dick Durbin of Illinois. Senate, uh, Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii told reporters, quote, I and others are waiting for Kirsten and Joe to tell us what it is that they like or they don't like, and then we can get it done. An unnamed Democratic senator told uh, CNN that Manchin and Cinema are, quote, a total moving target at this point with a total lack of clarity. They're basically saying, let's pass the smaller, bipartisan, $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill, which, by the way, is not actually paid for. It will result in deficit spending. So, yes, Republicans who support that smaller bill also support increasing the deficit. Just FYI. So they want Manchin and Cinema. They want to pass that smaller bipartisan bill and then wait to pass sometime down the road the much larger, much more transformative Build Back Better bill with the expansions of the social safety net. It's currently proposed as a $3.5 trillion program to be spent over 10 years for the expansion of health care, education, parental leave, child tax credits, and the nation's first real attempt to take on climate change. The closest thing that either Manchin or Cinema have explained as far as their objections go is that the $3.5 trillion, that's just too much money, even though, as President Biden has explained, the bill actually will cost zero because it is fully paid for with increased taxes on corporations and the very wealthy, those making more than $400,000 a year. It's not mansion and cinema. Uh, it's not that they have a, a, a consistent stated set of requirements that Democrats can work with here. 
They're just reveling in all the attention that they're getting while refusing to do their jobs by negotiating in good faith, especially cinema, who really hasn't made her priorities known at all. Though, as we did mention on yesterday's show, she did hold a fundraiser with a whole bunch of business lobbying groups who oppose this reconciliation bill because it will increase their taxes if they made more than $5 million last year. And nonetheless, that increased tax is still lower than what they were paying before Donald Trump and the Republicans uh, cut their taxes back in 2017. For this, even though she doesn't say so, Kirsten Cinema seems prepared to tank the entire Biden agenda because progressives in the House say they will not vote to support that smaller infrastructure bill that Cinema helped make happen with her Republican partners in the Senate, who apparently she is willing to work with Republicans, just not with Democrats, it seems. Which would explain why her approval rating now among Democrats in her own home state has absolutely tanked from the high 60s earlier this year to just about 17 percent today. And it's also why the Arizona State Democratic Party has passed a resolution condemning her unwillingness to adopt Biden's agenda, threatening that they may uh, pass a vote of no confidence in her if she doesn't change her tune quickly. The consensus seems to be that Joe Manchin, who routinely does this, coming from a state where Trump won by almost 40 points, he shows that he's concerned about some Democratic priority or another. He pushes them to scale it back a bit and then claim victory and then goes ahead and votes with the Democrats. But cinema. Her behavior here is far more inexplicable, frankly. Here was California Congressman Ro Khanna on CNN discussing the imperative of adopting Joe Biden's agenda and the absurdity that Kirsten Cinema seems to be the only one now standing in its way. We want to deliver on his message for the working and middle class. That means giving affordable childcare to everyone watching. It means seniors are finally going to get dental and hearing aids covered. It means that if you're sick, you're going to get paid leave. All of the folks at the White House know we're being reasonable. And literally one senator, one senator, Kirsten Cinema, is holding up the will of the entire Democratic Party. It's important for people to realize this. This is not progressives versus moderates. This is the entire Democratic Party and Joe Biden versus Kirsten Cinema. I have no idea what she wants. I don't think her colleagues know what she wants. I don't think the president knows what she wants. I don't think House moderates knows what she wants. We've said, let's get in a room. Let's negotiate. Let's come up with a deal. And I just don't understand it. I mean, the president carried her state. Look, I respect Senator Manchin. He's in a state that is 30 percent Trump, and he always comes through at the end, and he's a, a person who votes his conviction. Kirsten Sinema is, a, in, Kirsten Sinema is in a state that it, Biden carried. Her colleague, Mark Kelly, who has higher popularity ratings, he's totally on board with the agenda, but we don't know what she wants. It's, it's really odd. Why is it that one senator should have this much power? I mean, you know, we're in a democracy where one senator is holding things up and the Senate parliamentarian. It's absurd, really. I think there's a the frustration is that this is 99% unanimity, and yet one person, it's not just that they're opposed, they're unwilling to negotiate. Yeah, it's kind of maddening, ain't it? It's absurd. That is where we are, however, at this hour. And, and again, it's worth underscoring, this is not progressives versus moderates. This is Kirsten Cinema versus the president of the United States, the Democratic president of the United 
United States and the entirety, pretty much, of the Democratic caucus in both the House and the Senate. Now, uh, Josh Marshall over at TPM, he's calling on Democrats and Biden to be ready to kill the bill. He's referring to the uh, not the larger reconciliation social safety net package, but the smaller unpaid for bipartisan bricks and mortar infrastructure bill that Cinema championed and that she's pushing for the House to vote on immediately. It's already passed in the Senate. She wants to vote immediately in the House, even though the original deal agreed to by all the Democrats, including Cinema and Manchin, is that both bills would be passed at the same time. So everyone got something that they wanted. Everyone gave away something that they wanted. It's called compromise. That was the plan, at least until Cinema and Manchin and less than 10 House Democrats began their seemingly inscrutable blockade of Biden's agenda, which will cost all of them hugely next year in the midterms if they fail to pass this transformative agenda. I don't know what they're thinking, and clearly Ro Khanna doesn't. A lot of people don't. Josh argues, therefore, today that Dems need to be seriously prepared to kill the smaller bill so that Cinema and friends, if she has any, will know that they are deadly serious about this, that it is all or nothing here, just as they had all previously agreed to. I have to agree with Josh Marshall on this because... If they go ahead and pass the bipartisan infrastructure deal, then they will be rewarding backstabbing and rewarding those who reneged on the agreement to put them both together. And they will lose one or both chambers of the House next year, and there will never be the expansion of the social safety net, a real effort to uh, deal with climate change and move to uh, uh, clean, renewable energy production in this country. So, yeah, I don't know what they're thinking. And if Nancy Pelosi is going to give them the uh, the vote that they want in the House on this uh, smaller bill that has already passed the Senate. But, uh, but if she does, I will note, as congressional expert and historian Norm Ornstein pointed out on this program a week or so ago, as I mentioned to uh, Josh last night, even if the bill gets a, a vote some in the House and somehow passes, because right now progressives in the House say they'll vote against it. But if Republicans who supported it in the Senate, if they are, they're currently whipping against this bill in the House, but if they decide to vote for it so it passes... Well, that doesn't mean it's a done deal either. Pelosi at that point still doesn't have to send it to the president's desk until the reconciliation bill is ultimately passed. She can just hang on to it. Here's Ornstein on this show last week. Let's say it passes. There is nothing in the rules or the law or the Constitution that requires the Speaker of the House Mm -hmm. to send it to the president immediately. Right. So let's say you hold it for a week or two until you can come to an agreement on uh, the reconciliation package and an agreement that would get the 50 votes. Right. And then you move quickly to get that through the Senate and send it to the House. And the Speaker says, okay, we're just about there. They're both going to go to the President. I think you probably are going to be able to get the votes to make that happen. Now, I think it's dicey, but I also think it's doable. Dicey indeed. Uh, I asked Norm how long that the speaker could actually hold the bill if she wanted to. He said she could hold it forever. 
And then, you know, until the session of Congress ends, if it runs out, then before she sends it to the president, then the whole process just starts over again from the beginning. I have no idea if that is where she is going, if she allows this to come up for a vote, if it somehow passes and it's most likely to fail because progressives have said they will vote against it. But who knows? Republicans, they could suddenly decide to vote for it and they could cause a whole bunch of problems for Democrats if they decided to do that. I'm just saying. So it is, as everyone seems to agree at this hour, uh, to put it nicely on FCC radio, yes, a flaming mess with no clue how this fight ends or the similarly immediate mess that the government could shut down entirely as of Friday if Republicans continue to filibuster a continuing resolution to keep it open in the Senate and the entire global economy could immediately tank on uh, or before October 18 when the U.S. runs out of borrowing power to pay for what it has already spent, like the $8 trillion uh, in increased national debt that was rung up by Republicans during the Trump administration if the Republicans continue to filibuster raising the debt ceiling. So that's where we are at this hour. Yep. Now, anyway, uh, Des, check out this segue. Okay. If all of this makes you feel like murdering someone... You're not alone. See what I did there? Earlier this week, the FBI came out with some startling new numbers on U.S. homicide statistics, which you may have heard because it got a lot of coverage. But there was something very odd that I noticed about that coverage from a bunch of media outlets. And yesterday I found someone who also noticed this strange take on these new numbers. The ACLU's Carl Takei joins us next to talk about it. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. You're listening to The Bradcast. We are 100% listener-supported, thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com slash donate. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, it seems only fitting that a failed presidency that began with a vow that, quote, this American carnage stops right here and stops right now would end with nothing but American carnage in its final year. Of course, there were more than 600,000 or so deaths from COVID-19 on Donald Trump's watch that his administration never took seriously. But setting that aside for the moment, if that's even possible, you may have seen the headlines earlier this week on the sudden spike last year, Donald Trump's final year in office in the U.S. murder rate. Killings in the United States jumped nearly 30 percent last year, according to FBI data released Monday that indicates a growing number of gun related slayings amid the pandemic. The Washington Post reports the FBI said murder and manslaughter saw their largest one year increase since the federal government began compiling national figures in the 1960s. Overall, violent crime rose just 5.6 percent in 2020, while property crimes actually fell 7.8 percent, according to the FBI. Assaults, however, increased 12 percent, according to the Bureau. 
Criminologists and police officials have been studying possible explanations for the sudden sharp increase in killings from societal changes because of the coronavirus to changes in policing. Stick a pin in that explanation for a moment. We'll get back to it. Also, to increased gun sales, the Post notes. So far this year, officials are seeing a further increase in homicides, though not as pronounced as the one seen last year. The FBI data also shows how how much killing in America is fueled by shootings. Specifically, gun homicides count for more than three out of every four killings. According to the FBI data, guns accounted for 73 percent of homicides in 2019, but that increased to 76 percent of homicides in 2020. Overall, however, crime is still well below the historic highs that were reached in the early 1990s and in many cities, including Washington, D.C., New York, Chicago. The number of killings is still far below the record high tolls from nearly 30 years ago. Republican and Democratic elected officials naturally disagree on what is causing the increase in homicides after years of decline and also how to stop it. The Biden administration faults the easy availability of guns as a primary reason, and the Justice Department is trying to stem the violence by cracking down on illegal gun trafficking. Changes in crime rates have long fueled political debates over gun laws, and the newly released data is likely to intensify that trend. On Monday, gun uh, gun control advocates said a large increase in first-time gun owners around the start of the pandemic likely played a significant role in rising shooting deaths. Ari Davis, a policy analyst at the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, said, quote, We know having a gun in your home, having a gun in public, makes you less safe and more likely to be a victim and perpetrator of gun violence. Davis said he was concerned about states that are repealing local gun safety measures and passing stand-your-ground laws, so-called, which allow people to use deadly force in public without a duty to retreat if they believe that they are being attacked or threatened. With more guns circulating in the communities, Davis notes, that's a dangerous mix when we're talking about community-based gun violence, the kind of violence that can be retaliatory, If we don't interrupt now, he notes, the spikes of today in gun violence can be hard to reduce even when the causes, like COVID, are gone. Republicans, however, blame Democratic-run cities for what they say are overly restrictive policies placed on police departments. Justin Nix, an associate professor of criminology at the University of Nebraska in Omaha, said the most likely culprits for the sharp spike in killings are twofold, the pandemic and what he called a police legitimacy crisis brought on by the videotaped killing last year of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis. He said the effect of trust lost in the police is magnified when officers, quote, de-police by pulling back from patrol and other duties in the face of public criticism. I see. So it's the public's fault for criticizing police murdering people? Really? Daniel Webster, director of the Johns Hopkins University Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy, said it was too early to tie the jump in gun sales to new owners to the rise in shooting deaths. But he noted that police departments in 2020 
saw personnel shortages because of the pandemic and new rules at police agencies designed to curb abusive policing after the videotaped killing of George Floyd. The New York Times uh, reporting on the FBI's uh, reported spike in killings echoed this same idea. They note the protests that erupted after the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis were an important factor in 2020. Some argue that the police, under intense scrutiny and demoralized, they write, pulled back from some aspects of crime prevention. Peter Winograd, a professor emeritus at the University of New Mexico who works as a consultant for the Albuquerque Police Department, said the low morale among police, the fact that the police are being less proactive because they are legitimately worried about being backed up by their superiors, was also a contributing factor. Law enforcement officers in Albuquerque, uh, like Police Chief Harold Medina, also cited what they called the revolving jailhouse door created by bail reform as a factor driving up violence, although critics of that hypothesis noted that violent crime also increased in places where those changes have not occurred. NPR also got in on the Blame the Police Reformers movement in their reporting. 2020 was unusual in that two things really did touch every community in the country, the pandemic uh, and the civil unrest following the police killing of George Floyd. And those two things coincided with the dramatic increase in murders. Researchers say that certainly points to some sort of connection. Several things could have contributed to this. Economic hardship caused by COVID-19, uh, police pulling back because of the pandemic, trust in the police cratering in many communities because of Floyd's killing. So as I was uh, reading and listening to a number of these stories, I kept seeing this over and over again, how falling trust in the police after the killing by police of George Floyd and reforms that were either enacted or at least called for by police reformers were somehow to blame for this spike in killings, which frankly didn't make a lot of sense to me. And then I saw Carl Takei. Uh, he's a senior staff attorney at ACLU, formerly at the ACLU's National Prison Project, citing and questioning the same strange reporting that I was seeing uh, on his own Twitter feed. So I thought I would ask him to join us to explain what seems to be going on here. Carl Takei is a senior staff attorney at the ACLU's Trone Center for Justice and Equality, where he litigates police practices, advances the ACLU's vision for reducing the role, power, presence, and responsibilities of police in U.S. communities, and coordinates policing-related litigation and advocacy across multiple ACU, ACLU projects and centers. Mr. Takei, it has been several years, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. So uh, it wasn't just me. You cite the uh, the New York Times uh, reporting here by saying that the article could pretty much be summarized as, according to cops, criticism of cops was the main reason why murders rose in 2020. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a story that we have heard before. Uh, it actually goes back to 2014 when then St. Louis Police Chief Sam Dotson coined the term Ferguson Effect. And basically, the Ferguson effect, according to its proponents, means that police choose to be less, quote-unquote, proactive because protests against police hurt their feelings. Mm -hmm. And this decrease in proactivity then leads to a rise in homicides and other violent crimes. And 
you know, the thing is, it, it reminds me of the South Park Underpants Gnomes episodes, <laughs> where, you know, they have this plan for making profit from stealing underpants. <laughs> Step one is steal underpants. Step two is, well, we don't know. Step three is profit. And in the same way, the Ferguson effect has three steps. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, less police proactivity, and I want to break down what that means. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it's less broken windows policing, fewer arrests for minor offenses, causes step two, which then causes more homicides and more violent crime in general. And yeah, the problem with this is it just it doesn't make sense. Right. Uh, you know, why, why would decreases in arrests of people for, um, you know, the low-level offenses like uh, panhandling or, um, you, know, uh, you know, passing bad checks, using counterfeit bills, as George Floyd uh, was accused of doing mm-hmm. uh, before he was murdered, that, you know, why would decreases in these kinds of arrests lead to more homicides. And that's the unanswered question yeah. at the core of the Ferguson effect idea. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, as I was reading this, it, you know, they would c- continue dropping this theory into all of the coverage of this, and I and I was struggling to even understand it, how, how, how you connect the dots between police reform and people killing people. I mean, isn't somebody already shot before the police might then intervene? And I mean, it surely it's not a case of police not coming out when they're when they're called that, you know, with a report that someone has been shot. Right. And, and you hit on a really important point, which is that police, when it comes especially to, you know, serious violent offenses like homicide, are reactive. They respond after the shooting has already taken place. And they don't have the ability to actually prevent gun violence. Um, and, and that's why over 40 years of seeing crime go up mm-hmm. and police budgets go up, crime going down, police budgets continuing to go up, you know, we have had 40 years of year-on-year increases in police budgets, and we've seen that there's actually no relationship between how much we are funding the police and you know, what is happening in terms of crime rates, because the police aren't actually able to impact the root causes of crimes, and especially, you know, crimes like uh, interpersonal violence Mm -hmm. or or crimes that come from, uh, you know, economic distress, from mental health issues, from drug dependence issues. You know, all of that requires different tools. But we live in a country where oftentimes the first, and only responds to anything that's labeled as crime is, well, we'll give more money to the police. Now, some of the reporting that I saw suggests that because there is, and it really had to connect a lot of dots here, but because there is less trust in the police, people are therefore less inclined to call the police when there is some sort of trouble. So a killing that might have been stopped had the police been called to intervene was not stopped and someone got killed. Is there is there any data included in either the FBI report or in, in any other studies that would actually support that theory that, you know, because of a lack of trust in police, people don't call them, therefore they don't show up in time to stop what becomes an eventual killing? You know, that that is not something that's been addressed by the research that's been done trying to dig into 
the so-called Ferguson effect. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a study last year that did a survey of um, police officers in 87 different law enforcement agencies. I, I think there were about 18,000 different officers surveyed before and after the police shooting Michael Brown, which you know was one of the major mm-hmm. events that led to the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement around the country. And um, what they found was that there was not a significant impact on police morale, on the number of tickets issued, on the number of community meetings that police officers participated in. Uh, So the evidence for even um, that, you know, that first step of Mm -hmm. a a decreased level of police activity, that is at best contested. In 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 reporting on this uh, sort of same line, uh, NPR. We played a clip of it there. Remember, they are the, you know, the trusted, right down the middle, fair and balanced, if you will, uh, news outlet. They they cite a guy by the name of Richard Rosenfeld as their sole source for forwarding these ideas. Uh, you write about Richard Rosenfeld in uh, one of your Twitter threads, Carl. Who who is Richard Rosenfeld? Uh, he's a criminologist who is one of a very small handful of academics who have really pushed hard on the Ferguson effect. And, you know, so now, you know, he's coming in and saying, well, you know, in 2020, uh, this is clearly the reason why homicides increased. Um, but if you just look at, at the circumstances, as you said, 2020 was a year where there was one enormous dir- disruption that happened worldwide that had impacts on small towns, large cities, in uh, cities with Democratic mayors, in cities with Republican Republican mayors, mm-hmm. in cities that, you know, uh, reduced police budget, budgets, in cities that increased police budgets, and um, that also had these economic impacts that really impact what we know are some of the root causes of interpersonal violence. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, it resulted in defunding of community services. It resulted in economic stress. And that is not the protests against police violence that happened in 2020. It was the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, and that resulted in uh, fewer cops actually on the beat because so many of them were homesick, among other problems. Uh, whereas Rosenfeld, as you note, seems to be describing, well, if we just had more stop and frisk stops, uh, with, with, you know, they'd supposedly find more guns and therefore supposedly stop more killings. That sort of seems to be at the root of his theory. Am I understanding it correctly? Right. And, you know, so, so there are two problems with this. One is that 2020 was a highly unusual year. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking at, at the last five years, the last 10 years, and you say, what was different about 2020 that made homicides go up more in 2020 than they did in previous years, why would you not look to the the major shock of COVID <laughs> first? Um, well, because yeah. you, you got something to sell. You got an idea that uh, it seems that Rosenfeld is, is interested in selling here, that, oh, this all has to do with criticism of the police. Uh, it was also mm-hmm. noted in, uh, in New York Times uh, that, that so-called revolving jailhouse doors created by bail reform... Uh, are also a factor driving up violence. That was uh, cited from that Albuquerque police chief in the Times reporting. Can can you explain what bail reform here actually means, how widespread it actually is at this point, and if there's any actual evidence to support 
this theory that the Times just kind of plops out there because a police chief said it, it seems to me. So first, there is no evidence. This is something that police chiefs and uh, oftentimes many prosecutors who are opposed to bail reform um, have just trotted out in response, oftentimes, you know, just, uh, you know, days after new legislation goes into effect that, um, you know, uh, changes the way that pretrial decisions about, uh, you know, release, supervision, mm -hmm. and holding people are made. Um, and, you know, we've seen in New Jersey, for example, um, and in New York, how there was this very sudden backlash after bail reform laws were passed, driven by you know, these political actors who were acting on their preconceived notions about what the impact would be. And, and, and the thing that you have to keep in mind is that with these decisions, um, that, you know, we have an unusual system in the United States that, you know, uh, is dependent on cash bail in most jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, it is, it means that people who are poor, who just don't have the money to come up with cash bail are held not because, uh, they, you know, um, there is some particular reason why they, you know, pose a greater, um, danger of being mm -hmm. released than anybody else, but because they don't have $100 or $1,000 in cash that they can pony up in the same way that somebody who has more wealth and more resources would be able to. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, because and, and are we seeing a lot of bail reform? I know there's calls for it, but is this a, an epidemic happening across the country yet? Are we reforming uh, bail uh, in, in that way in large numbers around the country? You know, there, there have been bail reform laws passed a number of places around the country. And where those laws have passed and been allowed to go into effect, mm -hmm. um, those doom and gloom predictions haven't panned out uh, it, because this is, you know, it, 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 mm -hmm. it is a change to a system that is fundamentally unjust, that is holding people on the basis of whether they are wealthy or not mm -hmm. and not on, on the basis of other considerations. So, so you know, it, it's good that these bail laws are being changed so that we're no longer dependent on this system of wealth-based incarceration. Yeah, well, the New York Times didn't mention that. They just let that cop come in and say that uh, bail reform is to blame. It's a revolving jailhouse door. Uh, Carl Takei, I saw a lot of uh, police and, and academics cited in various reporting uh, on this, but a decided lack of insight from police reformers and attorneys such as yourself actually fighting for reform of policing. Uh, a, is that unusual in your experience? And also, uh, while it should be noted that violent crime and specifically homicides are still way down from historic uh, heights, uh, what, what do you attribute the uh, FBI's reported spike to? And and frankly, what should be done about it? I, I would have liked to have heard from people like you in this reporting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's really frustrating that, you know, all we heard from was cops and cop defenders in, mm -hmm. in this reporting, because there are solutions. Um, uh, elected officials just have to in invest in community-driven violence intervention programs that can actually prevent violence from taking place 
you know, part of this is just just the basics of economic investment and, and providing the resources that have been taken away for decades from communities of color. Um, but another part of it is also um, specific violence interruption and prevention programs. So one study found that every additional community-focused nonprofit in a medium-sized city leads to a 12% reduction in the homicide rate, mm. a 10% reduction in violent crime, and a 7% reduction in property crime. In Philadelphia, just cleaning vacant lots mm. in neighborhoods that were below the poverty line led to a 29% decrease in gun assaults. Wow. So the, the problem isn't that uh, we have no models to choose from. It is that instead of adequately funding those true violence prevention programs uh-huh. and investing in positive ways in black and brown communities, we instead just turn again, over and over again, to this uniquely American dependence on police. And the uh, the media also seem to just turn to the police to get their takes on all of this instead of people who are actually trying to solve the problem and have been uh, for many years. Uh, Carl, lastly, uh, much of this is is seemingly be, being done, at least it seems to me, to sort of continue to try and derail the uh, perhaps unfortunately worded, if purposely misinterpreted, defund the police movement, uh, which is actually about funding alternative responses to many situations in which police are called or uh, as we discussed some months ago on this show and you know police just show up for routine stuff like traffic stops for speeding or missing taillights which police don't need to be involved in at all um, that that movement seems to have sort of taken a back seat in recent months is it still viable or has it been sort of fully discredited now by uh, both Republicans and Democrats alike who just don't seem to be talking about this as much anymore? I, I mean, this idea of shifting role of power and responsibilities and resources away from police and into alternatives, it's not in the headlines anymore, but it is still going forward. So actually, just this week in Brooklyn Center, um, Minnesota, mm-hmm. where, um, you know, the, the mayor and the city council approved a plan to uh, change the, the overall approach to public safety in, in Brooklyn Center. Um, they, you know, they are starting to actually implement that plan. And uh, to remind you, Brooklyn Center is where uh, Dante Wright, a black man, was killed by a local police officer mm-hmm. during a traffic stop that the officer initiated because um, Mr. Wright had expired tags and he had an air freshener dangling from his rearview mirror. Yep. Um, and so, you know, that, that city now is shifting responsibilities for a, a wide range of traffic violations out of the hands of police and into uh, civilian responses. It is um, restricting the uh, range of offenses that uh, police arrest for so that, you know, a lot of these uh, situations that otherwise would result in arrests for low-level offenses are now... Um, you know, being shifted to citations. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and, and there's an ongoing discussion inside the, the city council in Brooklyn Center about, um, you know, what the alternatives um, are that should be funded and, and how they can start meeting the needs of the community for public safety through these non-police dependent mechanisms. So it is going forward. It's just that, you know, it's not making it to the New York Times. 
Well, I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing because the last time uh, this came out and people started reporting, oh, defund the police, they all pretended that... Uh, you know, police reformers wanted to get rid of police entirely. There would be no one to call when you needed help. No one would answer when you called 911. And uh, so that bad reporting didn't help. This bad reporting coming off of the FBI's new uh, uh, crime statistics in 2020 doesn't seem to me to be particularly helpful either. Therefore, Carl Takei, I am greatly uh, uh, honored that you would uh, join us to help uh, give some real context and background to this. Carl Takei is a senior staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union's Trone Center for Justice and Equality. You can, of course, find their work at ACLU.org. And you can find Carl on the Twitters. Uh, he's a good follow. He is Carl Takei. That's T-A-K-E-I. Carl Takei, really appreciate you joining us today, sir. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's take a quick break here. And you know what? We're going to go from phony claims about policing finding their way into what is supposedly legitimate media outlets. Yeah. To a real story, a story on the real effects that bad laws actually have on real people. But in this case, it's quick and, yes, good news story. <laughs> okay, good. So you're welcome. No more murder from here to the end of the show. We'll wrap up with that straight ahead. That's next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Uh-huh. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Prosecutors here in Los Angeles will now move to dismiss nearly 60,000 marijuana-related convictions about five years after California voters approved recreational cannabis According to the district attorney's office this week, officials identified about 58,000 cases that are eligible for dismissal. Wow, 58,000. According to that, according to uh, L.A. County District Attorney George Gascon, the cases go back three decades. Now, uh, it's more than 58,000. In fact, last year, Jackie Lacey, who was the uh, district attorney last year, she dismissed 66,000 convictions related to pot. Gaskin, who was elected DA last November, said the new dismissals would mean the possibility of better futures for thousands of people. He said in a statement, it's clear the path for them to find jobs, housing and other services that previously were denied to them because of unjust cannabis laws. The 66,000 cases dismissed last year relied on data from the State Justice Department, apparently. While these new 50, well, they're old, but the discovery of these 58,000 new cases now being dismissed were found after a review of county court records. So this is more than 100,000 people who were, uh, you know, tarred by this, by stupid marijuana laws that should have never been there in the first place. Thankfully, they are now gone, at least out here in California. And um, 
hopefully these people will finally have their names cleared and their lives unruined by what has uh, gone on for so many years. California voters voted in 2016 to approve a measure that legalized recreational marijuana. Oh, and it has just been a nightmare out here in California since then. <laughs> I mean, frankly, pot stores are, are, are some of the f- few that were not shut down during the pandemic. They stayed open. And no, we do not have crazed reefer madness zombies roaming the streets. <laughs> no, we do not. We, and in fact, our yeah. state has pulled in billions of dollars in revenue yeah. from legalizing recreational cannabis. Right. So. And people are not risking their lives anymore by, you know, walking into a well-lit modern store to buy pot. Prosecutors and officials in other states have also moved to expunge or dismiss pot convictions after recreational marijuana became legal. New York, for example, began automatically expunging criminal records of people with certain marijuana convictions after recreational marijuana was legalized this year. 2019 law decriminalized possession and led to records being expunged. 18 states now and Washington, D.C. have legalized recreational marijuana. Oh, the horror. (laughs) That's it. We got to get out. My thanks to my guest today, Carl Takei of the ACLU, to my producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free. At bradblog.com, pass it around on the left-hand side to your <laughs> friends. You can also, hey, while you're there, please hit one of those donate buttons. Or you can go to bradblog.com donate to help us stay on your public airwaves doing what we try to do every day. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.